What is up, team? Today, I'm joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you for being back, dude. It feels like it's been a while since we've done a solo episode. I know, man. It has been a little bit. There's been a lot going on, and um, I'm looking forward to catching up with you. What's been going on? Uh, not a lot, man. Just been keeping my head down. Been growing quickly. Um, been taking on a lot of new clients that look great, which has been, as of late, which has been awesome. But yeah, man, I feel like more or less the same thing as always. What has been going on with you, dude? Man, it's it's been a couple of, an exciting few weeks, but just particularly like we're uh, this past weekend was was my birthday, and I went out to the Physique Education Collective in Nashville, um, and that's where I celebrated my birthday, and it was it was an immensely great time. You know, that's my third time going to this event, and it was really uh, you know I had a lot of people even within social media or even those that I know that kind of criticized me. They were like, "You're going to spend your thirtieth birthday like down at at a education conference." And, and here's the thing, man, I live for this and you know, that person, you know, me. Yeah. And so like, that's what I'm passionate about. And for me to be able to spend a birthday with my, you know, surrounded by some of my favorite people in the industry, including some of my clients that flew down, you know, other mentees that I have, you know, people like Jeff Hone, who I'd yet to meet, but I've, we've been on a podcast with him 15 plus times in the past right. year. And then being able to meet in person, my own mentors, like a Scott Stevenson, who I've studied with for eight years and just haven't had the opportunity to meet in person. In addition to like, say my co-host at Chasing Clarity, Jeff Black, like I stayed with him. It was like, it, it made me feel like I was, you know, part of a family. And that's a really unique thing in this industry that we've kind of lost within the last few years because we've stopped doing the in-person seminars. And don't get me wrong. I love podcasts. You know, I've jumped on here with you, you know, 20 times over the past year or two, but you lose some of that in-person connection and really getting to know people and spending the day with them and being able to surround yourself with like-minded individuals. That's how we push this industry forward. And you know, I'm always talking about, let's set the standard and keep raising the bar. And that's how we do it. We, we throw ideas back and forth and, and we're able to get constructive criticism in person from people that we respect and that we admire. So, you know, that was a great event. And then other than that, business has been going really well. Um, and even within like the context of modeling, which I'm not as active in as I usually uh, am, but um, I literally just within the last week, I landed uh, a 14 page cover story with an international fitness Hell yeah. that'll release next month. And then last night, I get a, a text message from a, a, a photographer I used to work with formerly, and uh, we landed a book cover last night. So, you know, he kind of told me, he said, listen, you have a book cover that you just landed. Are you going to be ready for any shoots in like four weeks? And here's the thing, you're going to be completely transparent with you. I've been in a building <laughs> phase since I, I've been out of a deficit since last June when I had surgery. I had run a, you know, a fat loss phase, went into surgery and then went into a recovery phase because I was out of training for so long. And so uh, I'm going to enter a mini cut next week. Um, you know, I've been out of a deficit for quite a long period of time. I've been, you know, really focused on, on hypertrophy training and, you know, being in a surplus and really, you know, implementing all the, uh, things, the practices and the principles that I preach to my clientele. But now, you know, there's some opportunities going forward with fitness modeling and things of that sort. So I'm going to make, you know, the most out of the opportunities. I love it, man. Do you feel good about your ability to be ready for that in four weeks? Yes. Um, I'm not going to say I'm going to be shredded as I had been in the past, but when you have dieted as many times, like, you know, just for the audience's background, I've competed uh, on a high level 15 times over the years. I've done a hundred plus photo shoots and that four weeks will essentially be the first photo shoot, but then I will continue. So I'm going to do a quick mini cut aggressively. You know, I'll drop myself into uh, quite a bit of a deficit and uh, just go, it'll be a short diet, but an aggressive hard diet. And here's the thing, you know, a lot of times, you know, I speak on metabolic adaptation and obviously that speeds the rate of metabolic adaptation. But, but here's the thing we have to realize that metabolic adaptation is going to happen regardless, but there are ways to mitigate things. So the way that you train, 
the protein, you know, your protein percentage, the other interventions, your sleep, your stress management, there's other things on the back end that a lot of people just focus on the deficit itself. But I have so many other things dialed in on the back end that not only I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to be able to reverse the effects of metabolic adaptation, but I know enough that I could go into a deep deficit and dig myself out once it's done. Right. So that's my greatest utility is having experience. And I'm someone that has logged every prep that I've done. I have notebooks upon notebooks, you know, files on my computer. I know every single diet, every single manipulation I've made, you know, in the last eight years, to be honest with you. So it's something that I'm able to look back on data and not that the body responds all the time in the same way, but I have so much data on myself. I know my body so readily. And I also have, you know, a team of people that I, I, you know, look to as, um, you know, trusted eyes, second eyes. So I have, you know, my boy, Joe Jeffries, who I will send, you know, photos to on a weekly basis, you know, and we'll go back and forth and we'll critique myself. I'll cut off my head in the photos because I'm essentially looking at myself like a clientele and he's helping me along the process to stay objective. So we'll know if my rate of loss is on point and uh, we'll see how my body responds. Okay. Now, not at all to say like, as always, when we're talking about an individual's macros for the listeners, this doesn't apply to like you should follow this because Brandon is, but just out of curiosity, because I know you've referred to having a pretty adaptive metabolism. We did go into a mini cut about where are you thinking you'll have to drop things to like right out of the gate. Yeah. So I just analyzed this last night, to be honest with you. And uh, I've been eating around 36 to 3,700 calories, um, you know, within the last two months or so it's, it's been pretty much at that rate. And I've been at a slow rate again. You know, I'm obviously advanced at this point. I've been training for 16 years, so I'm not expecting to put on a ton of tissue. And so I take, um, very similar to what we discussed in the P ratio podcast and, and the building a lean physique podcast. I take a slow rate again of about 0.25 at max per, per week. So I don't go over 1% per month on waking. And so with that, I'm probably going to drop myself into about a thousand calorie deficit. So I'll, I'll go right to 2,600 off the bat. And the reason for that is if I look back into my sheets to get honestly, like what Alberto Nunez or Eric Helms would say legally shredded, I've had to get down to 1700 or 1800 calories. And just for the audience's reference, like peeled on stage, like stage ready, I'm about 205. So that's very low amount of calories. But like Jeremiah mentioned, we've had these discussions off air. I have an extremely adaptive metabolism. And that's why I've utilized and refined this energy flux approach, which has allowed me over the last couple of years since I've been away from competing to diet on higher calories. But I'm never going to sit here and tell you guys that energy flux has taken me from 1,700 calories to dieting on 3,500 calories because that just isn't the case. And I do have an extremely adaptive metabolism in both ways where it's hard for me to gain, but it's hard for me to lose. So my body essentially fights and it tries to stay at this body fat, you know, or body weight or body fat set point. And so it's defending homeostasis essentially. So I know that about myself. So I'm not the type of person that can just go, especially with having such a truncated period of time, I can't just go into a 300 or a 500 calorie deficit and really expect any tangible rate of gain. Because I always try to describe to people that maintenance is a range. So my maintenance is really probably around 32 to 3,700 calories. I'm just at the right. upper end. And with me having been in a building phase for close to a year, I have what I call inflated maintenance. So my calories are in, increased. And we see that in literature on overfeeding studies where your BMR can increase by 10 to 15%, but that's only tangent or, or you know, that's only transient, meaning it's temporary. It's based on when you're in an overfeeding period, you're naturally, you know, subconsciously increasing your need, you have higher energy in the system, you're expending more energy, you're getting a higher thermic effect of feeding. So there's all these other things working on the back end that a lot of people don't consider. So I have to keep that in mind when I'm making adjustments. And especially with the, the period, generally, I would look at about a six to 700 calorie deficit for myself right off the bat, because I know that 
a 700 calorie deficit for me is about a 500 calorie deficit for someone else just because I do adapt so quickly, but I am going to go to a thousand calorie deficit and put myself at about 26 to 2,700 calories off the bat. And we'll see how the body responds from there. Everything's going to go off biofeedback. I check in with myself daily. I do photos at least three times a week. So I'm looking at biomarkers. I'm looking at metrics. And then I'm also looking at past, you know, I'll go to the same lighting in the same gym. I'll look at previous photo shoot preps. So I have so much data to collect and not that everyone needs to do this, but when you've been doing this a long period of time, sometimes that's the best way to stay objective with yourself. Am I on point? Am I in tracking comparison to where I've been previously? Because when you are, you know, you're landing a cover shoot or you're landing, you know, um, you know, a publication, there is an expected look. It isn't just like I'm, I'm paying someone to do a photo shoot. You know, it's the opposite right. in that case. So there is an expectation and there's a little pressure on there, but I kind of live for that. I love it, man. I'm really stoked to see how that goes. It'll be interesting to kind of follow your process throughout that. Absolutely. As well. And I'm going to document it because, you know, I was just in Tennessee and I was eating off plan, you know what I mean? Not off plan, but I eat, I eat well, fairly so, but I was eating out at restaurants and stuff. So I'm kind of um, what I would consider my most deconditioned. And this is great because that motivates me to push even harder for this because this opportunity just came last night. So I was expecting to continue into a building phase. So this week I was just um, essentially mm-hmm. auto-regulating my calories because I knew I had been a little bit higher because I did celebrate my birthday. I had a birthday dinner on Sunday. So I was retaining a little bit of extra water, but this is a situation I find my clients in all the time. You know what I mean? They enjoy something, but then they want to get ready for a vacation or something. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I don't put my clients in a thousand calorie deficit, but at the same time, sometimes it is a nice reminder. Hey, I just ease off the gas. I reset myself on vacation. I had a great time, but now it's time to rein it in and, and get my physique back into shape. Absolutely, dude. And I know with where you're coming from, you'll have a very easy time doing so. But it'll be cool to follow the process as well, especially with it being a little bit more of an aggressive approach. But anyways, man, I'm still to get dig into today's topic. As we were talking about off air, you never really touched on programming where I love digging into programming. But as we've discussed, I think there are a lot more nutritional gaps where people need more help. So I think that's primarily what both of us talk about. But I'm really excited to dig into this and kind of just your thought process, how you go about putting together a program for a client. So really, I kind of want to split this up into two sections, first being primary programming considerations. And then I want to dig in a little bit deeper with the specialist issue cycles. I know I've heard you refer to these quite a bit, but I've never actually talked through with you how you go about putting these together. So first, to dig into the primary programming considerations, can you just give us a quick definition of volume and then just explain like why this is important, why this is one of the first things you're considering when you're putting together a client's program? Absolutely. So just from a, a fundamental perspective, volume is essentially the dose of our training, the dose of the stimulus. And the thing with volume is there's a lot of, you know, I, I find within our, our industry, especially within training um, paradigms or training topics, there's a lot of things, they become the hot topic of the year. So this year it's intensity or relative intensity. Like, should you train to failure or not? And in previous years, it was volume. So we had volume debates, high volume versus low volume. And a lot of times you'll hear people, they'll refer to volume as a primary driver of hypertrophy. And and although that's a mechanism, that's a way to get to, to hypertrophy, what we really have to realize is that volume, I see it more as a way of measuring the dose of the training stimulus you're using, which includes the amount of mechanical tension we're exposing our muscle fibers to which is the main driver of muscle growth. So it's mechanical tension, not exactly volume, but volume is a way to titrate. It's like a, a, a dial. You're able to turn up and down to the mechanical tension. And if you were to look at the literature, you'll see that training volume works in what's called an inverted U, meaning there's a dose response 
We're doing more provides more growth to a certain point though. So we often, this is where we get into these debates where it's like, is high volume better or low volume? It's like, you have to realize that in these studies, it's not a linear response. It's not like the more volume you do, the more growth you'll get. Because eventually doing more will cause you to plateau and regress and can actually cause you to get diminishing returns. So you're doing more and more, but you're getting less and less gains or less muscle growth in return. So I, you know, I have a lot of clients that come to me having run very high volume programs. So it could be a 45 sets per week, like a Schoenfeld study, um, or they're utilizing very, very high volume programs and they think they have to do more. And that's kind of a misconception in our industry as a whole. You know, if you're not getting, you know, you're not getting the results you want, do more. It's like everything's do more instead of, you know, I really like to focus on quality over quantity and we'll titrate up quality or quantity based on the response of the person. So when I look at training volume, I try to describe it to clientele as a hormetic stress, which means like when you do a little training, you're going to get a little adaptation and thus a little growth. When you add a bit more volume to that and increase the amount of stimulus that you're utilizing, it equals a little more adaptation and growth. But eventually you'll get to this point where you reach, say, your optimum level of stimulus, which is like what Mike Rizzo-Rotel would refer to your MAV. And that's where you're growing at your best rate. However, what often happens is people decide, you know, they got there and they're like, let me push it a little bit more. And if you do more than that and you can't adapt as well, you know, you're not going to be able to, you're going to impair your recovery capacity. So that's where I find a lot of people because they're basically in this state where their stimulus and their recovery are in this balance. So there's no adaptation or growth as you're pretty much just breaking even and hitting a plateau. Okay, absolutely. And I think that's such an important point to get across to people where, uh, more stimulus isn't always better, right? You have to first be able to recover from all that fatigue that we induce before we can actually see growth of new muscle. So I think that's such an important caveat. So I have a ton of, I have a ton we could dig into our volume, but actually I want to get through our main questions here first, which I would ask from your perspective, what are some of the main mistakes people make when it comes to training volume? Well, honestly, you, you just hit on one of them. Um, probably the main mistake that I see many training uh, trainees doing is trying to push volume up even more, especially when they start seeing their progress slow or stall. As often, they'll think that if they do more, it'll allow them to break past their, that plateau and, and that stall in progress. But at one point, many do too much and get this maladaptive response. We have to realize the body adapts, but it doesn't always adapt positively. It can adapt negatively as well. So if they have this maladaptive response, they're not going to be able to recover from their training. And then they start backsliding both in terms of their training performance and their muscle growth. So they start realizing they're losing reps or they're not able to handle as much load. They're no longer being able to progress week to week. And then they start noticing their, their gains in muscle are slowing down or they're regressing. And so the one thing we, we all need to realize, and I, I really try to get this across, especially to my clientele, is that we can only train as hard as we can recover from. Because mm-hmm. training provides a stimulus, but growth takes place outside of the gym and requ- requires specific processes to occur. So first, you know, the fundamental principle is we have to train. We have to provide a sufficient training stimulus through proper programming, but it's got to be proper programming that you can recover from. And when we think about recovery, if you actually think about the sports science definition of recovery, recovery only gets you back to your baseline level of performance. So what we really need to focus on is not just recovering, not just getting back to baseline, not just digging a hole and getting it back to to flat ground. We need to go above that. So essentially what we need to do is we must recover beyond that of where we we left off to adapt, which is how we grow muscle tissue and increase strength. And what I find many people doing is they focus so much on doing more volume that they're actually providing their body with more of a stimulus than they can recover from. 
And they're starting to get into this point where they're doing an excessive amount of work, which is leading to the accumulation of junk volume. And junk volume is something we've covered in, in one of our Q&As, but for anyone out there, junk volume is essentially work that's being done that just doesn't provide any benefit. So this could include any sets that you're doing that aren't done with either enough relative intensity to you know stimulate muscle tissue or ones that are, are done in excess of what you can actually recover from. And so when we really think about training volume or the training stimulus, you know, a training stimulus can only and will only work if you can recover from it. So with many clients, I actually end up pulling back on volume initially uh, to focus on increasing the quality of their stimulus before I start increasing the quantity of that stimulus. So basically when I'm setting up, you know, either my own training or a client's training program, I'm aiming to get enough of a stimulus to challenge our muscles because we need to challenge our bodies to do more than we have done previously, or it's not going to adapt and keep progressing. But what we really want to do is give enough stimulus cause an adaptation, and that's going to result in growth, but not do so much that we can't recover and match or exceed our performance in subsequent sessions. Yeah. Um, so I think it was Jordan Lips posted this the other day. I just thought it was an interesting insight where it's incredibly rare that someone will start coaching with you, and the problem is they weren't doing enough volume, right? 100%. Especially oh. with people that... I don't know who Jordan coaches, but I'll tell you from my perspective, I coach mostly intermediate and advanced, and it's always that do more mentality. And often they'll come to me and say, I don't know if I'm doing enough. And, and I look at things and sometimes they're doing a moderate amount of volume, but I'll have them send me training videos where I'll look at their, their intensity within their, or the relative effort within their sets, and they're not giving enough within there. So that's where we really need to look at what is the quality of that stimulus, not just the quantity. Let's not just look at how many hard sets are you quote unquote supposedly doing. It's what does that volume look like? Oh, absolutely. And that's very similar. I think most everyone hops on board almost immediately will pull things back a bit and we'll audit intensity and execution of the movements, right? Before that, before we like push volume any higher, again, almost always those are the two factors that seem to be missing a bit more often. So from your perspective then, how do we, or kind of what determines someone's training volume? Yeah, so the amount of volume someone needs is so individual and it's both situation and context dependent. So it's going to vary from one client to another, but it's also going to depend on where that client is in their periodization, in their nutrition, um, within their lifestyle. So I think it's, it's also important to note that we don't need to do the same amount of volume at all times of the year or for all body parts, because we often hear things being thrown out, like do 10 to 20 sets per week. And it just, it's like this blanketed application and people think, all right, well, if I'm at 20 sets for my back, I need to do 20 sets for my arms and my legs and my shoulders. And, and it's kind of like this blanketed approach. And what I have found is I find a benefit to periodizing training volumes over different mesocycles and training blocks. So generally what I like to do is I like to start low, especially when someone first comes to me and I'll build up into moderate and then higher volumes based on how a client is responding and what their biofeedback and biomarkers look like. And I like to look at overall weekly volume for the entire body as a budget, because we all have only so much recovery resources and capacity. And that's going to, that's going to range from someone for me, it might be hundred sets per week for another client. It might be 80 sets. So we're not working with the same budget. Just like if we both work different careers, I wouldn't tell you to, to spend on a car as much as, you know, if you made a hundred thousand dollars more than me, I wouldn't spend as much on a car on, on a mortgage as you would. We're working with two different budgets and two different, um, you know, abilities to, to spend our money. And the same thing happens with, with training volume. So when I look at it as a budget, I, I always realize that this is going to range based on the, tr the client's training age, their experience, um, their nutritional status, 
and also their preference among other variables. Like what is their time like? What is their schedule like? Do they have time to train with 100 sets per week total? And that's what I'm talking about, you know, all seven or eight body parts. So some will need and can handle more, whereas some can't which is why it's so important to consider the other variables within their programming, such as say like the relative effort of their training. So are they using RIR? Um, you know, for this, it would be kind of like looking at, you know, we need to consider how hard you're training and how close to failure you're taking your sets as well as your capacity to push yourself. Because I'll tell you, when I have newer trainees come to me, they might think that they're going zero reps in reserve and there are a few reps left. Like I see it in their videos. I see that they're not seeing velocity loss, but in their mind, they're fatigued. And so, that, you know, the mind and body, we cannot separate those two. So with that being said, they feel mentally and thus physically exhausted. So for them, they're, they're training to their failure. So we have to keep that in mind and realize that mental fatigue is going to have some type of impact on, you know, uh, physical fatigue, although there is research that shows the exact opposite. But when I'm in the real world with people, if they feel like they're pushing their ultimate limit, I'll, I'll you know, I will encourage them to do more in terms of you know, focusing a little bit more, looking for velocity loss and, and reminding them your first rep shouldn't be just as, your last rep shouldn't be just as quick as your first rep. Like we need to see some slowing down, but it's something that's got to come with time. So relative effort is going to be extremely important. We got to look at the loads and the rep ranges used. So, you know, a great example of this is when I have like guys that have, have strongman um, backgrounds or powerlifting, they're using much higher loads as compared to my females. And generally with a female, they're going to be able to handle you know, higher volume work, maybe higher rep ranges based on, on their phenotype. So these are things we have to consider when looking at what volume is appropriate. Because if I have a 250 pound bodybuilder who crushes himself with, with heavy compound movements and, and is really strong and needs that to create a stimulus as compared to a 120 pound bikini competitor, it's going to be two different subsects, which I have to cater volume to each. We also have to look at the training frequency. So how many times per week are they training in general? Like, where am I spreading out that volume to? So if they're only training three days per week, I need to really keep that in consideration. Like how much effective volume can they get per session per muscle group? Also, you know, tr how many times per week are they training a muscle and how are they spreading out their weekly training volume? Someone that's training six days per week is going to have much different training volume generally than someone training three days per week. Another thing is say their exercise selection. Like what are the par part of the muscle is the movement biasing? Like, are we looking, you know, we look, have to look at the stimulus to fatigue ratio. We have to look at, is this a length and overload um, movement, which is really going to stre stress the eccentric and really, you know, cause more muscle damage? Or is this more of a shortened overload position where we're going to be able to probably do more volume in, in that, that uh, portion? And then, you know, I think a lot of these considerations are missed even within our space, like even within the evidence-based space, which is why many will just throw out that blanketed recommendation of training body parts with 10 to 20 sets per week. But we even see in research that there's a massive variability between individuals' volume tolerance. So there's actually, there's a study that I love looking over. I, I always, whenever I, I'm talking to a client, they think they have to do a particular amount of volume based on what they've seen in an infographic or on a pot, they've heard on a podcast. I always go back to the study and it's by Damas. And um, it's from a few years ago. And essentially what they did was they did it within subject design on leg training, where they would train both quads using, using three sets per session, but they would train the quads in a different fashion. So essentially what they did was they used different frequencies between each leg. So each um, subject acted as their own control because they went through both interventions. So on one leg, they had them do leg extensions two to three times per week. So that leg trained with between six and nine sets per week. Whereas on the other leg, they had them do leg extensions five times per week. 
So they were training that quad with 15 sets per week. And now when they looked at the results, it, it turned out really interesting. And it kind of just shows like the massive variability between people because a third of the participants saw better quad growth on the leg using higher volume. A third of the participants experienced greater quad growth on the leg using the lower training volume. And then a third of the other participants, so the last third, saw the same growth between both volumes. So it didn't matter if they did nine sets or they did 15 sets, they grew the same. So we see that there's a massive variability in the dose response of volume between individuals, which is what I've seen in my own experience. Like I have had clients who've had some body parts that respond and grow from say six to eight sets per week. I'm, I'm thinking about a particular client right now, Anthony in particular, but he has other muscle groups that require 20 plus sets for us to just start seeing progress in. And I've seen this in myself um, as well. So my philosophy on volume at this point is it should be individualized to the person and the body part. So it's not just about like, is this person a low volume or a high volume responder? It's like, what within the context of this person, what is their volume tolerance? And then what level or what end of that spectrum is each muscle group we're working with? Do I need to put some others? You know, what, what I try to do is I will allocate more volume towards body parts that need more work and can handle more work. Whereas if others are better responders, so say I have certain clientele, um, you know, for instance, I have uh, a client right now, Jake, he's very lower body dominant. So I'm going to put lower um, training volume on Jake's lower body and higher on his upper body so that we can allocate more of the training stimulus to the parts that he needs most. And then also save some recovery resources from that training his legs at the same volume. So I'm sure, you know, I'm very, um, I'm pretty sure you do the same thing with Jeff Hone, where you don't have him train his lower body because he has dominant legs, but you'll have him spend more time focused on upper body growth by utilizing more of that volume budget. You might not frame it like that, but you're essentially taking more of those adaptive resources and focusing it towards his upper body where he needs more work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so digging into the specialization cycles because I think I might actually do something very similar to what you have here. I've just never framed it quite the same, but yeah, that's a, that's all very helpful. And that's the volume thing is so interesting because even like a content I create, like I was creating a piece of content this morning. I was trying to give like a general recommendation for volume, but it's so hard to like, fuck, it's just very, so much by person, by muscle group. There are just so many variability, variabilities there. Um, the conversation I was having with Brian Borstein last week, I'm interested in your thoughts on just in general, when we're speaking about volume, um, from his perspective, and I, I, to, I would agree with this. It seems like what I've seen as well is like, typically it seems that people that are beginners, we kind of have an inverted view where people that are beginners seem to need a little bit less volume. Uh, people kind of more that intermediate stage and his take on this was maybe because those people just don't execute quite as well, um, tend to need a little bit higher volume. Then once people get more of the advanced stage, then once again, we seem to see volume needs not quite as high to continue to grow. Do you think like in theory or in practice, is that something you've seen as well or any thoughts on that? No, I've definitely seen that. And I see it from a little bit of a different perspective. I think of it like this. So when a beginner first starts out, they're going to grow from anything. You are right. most receptive and sensitive. You're going to grow from, we see in, in research that from one set per body part um, programs, they grow. So it's a very little bit of stimulus needed and they're going to have an adaptive response. And if you do too much, say you go off the bat from a beginner, uh, beginner perspective, you're just going to cause more damage than you are going to cause hypertrophy. So you're going to dig a hole that you can't get out of. So it's more beneficial for beginners and newbies to train with lower volumes. But as you acclimate to training and you go through the repeated bout effect and you get better at recovering and actually you know, being able to train efficiently, or effectively, you're going to be able to do more and more. And you're going to probably push up that volume threshold. And I think it comes from two 
two different perspectives. You haven't nailed really, you, you've nailed some of the big rocks. So you got your volume in place, maybe your intensity in place, but your exercise execution isn't, isn't optimal. Your exercise selection isn't optimal. There's all these other variables. Maybe your sleep, your stress management, your nutrition still isn't dialed in yet. Especially, you know, if you're two to three years in and you're intermediate, you probably don't have the rest of your lifestyle conducive to make gains. So you're putting more stimulus within your training just to, to have some type of adaptive response. However, as you get further on in the process, you start dialing in things more and you have to push your body more. We're going to have to progress the stimulus, but we have to realize that volume is not only is not the only dial of stimulus. So as we get more advanced, we're able to get closer proximity to failure. We're able to gauge. So we see it in research. And I'll tell you from my own perspective, when I have someone and I bring them from, you know, that I've worked with for several years from an intermediate to advanced, their ability to gauge their proximity to failure. So how many reps in reserve they have is much more accurate. So we see with even like beginners and intermediates, uh, Eric Helms did a study with Mike Zerdos uh, a few years ago where they, they asked people to give their 10 rep max on a bench press. And so they gave them and they, they pretty much covered it. And so the average individual in that study hit 16 reps. There were six reps off. So there were six reps in reserve. However, when we look at some of the research from Steele and Fisher, we see that advanced individuals, those with multiple years, five to six years of training are generally only one rep off when gauging their proximity of failure. So this is a skill, as with everything, training is a skill, your ability to gauge how close are you to being gassed out? Like, did you take it to the house or not? And so with that, you're increasing the stimulus. You might not be increasing the volume in terms of sets per week for a muscle group, but you're getting more out of less in terms of more out of each set. Each set is more stimulative. Each set is closer to failure. Each set is executed much more effectively. So you're actually targeting and biasing the muscle that you had on it or, or had the intention of hitting. So instead of utilizing so many accessory movements or ancillary muscle groups during a movement and really activating a lot of tissue, you're really biasing that target tissue. And I also think that over time we get as advanced trainees, we get so dialed into our training that we optimize everything. So we're getting, you know, for instance, I now bias a lot of um, lengthened overload movements where before I did a lot of shortened overload because I wanted to chase a pump. So when I was an intermediate, I might've been able to do 20 sets per week for, for back training where now I'm, I'm lucky if I can get 10 to 12. You know what I mean? So it's, it's really about, there's so many variables, but I do see that in practice. And, and obviously they don't cover that in the research because very infrequently, do we ever have advanced individuals who are going to offer up, Hey, you know, I'll give up my training and my programming and everything within my lifestyle for 12, 16 or 20 weeks. We're, we don't have that because a lot of guys like myself or you or Brian Borstein, we're not going to do that because we know what works for us. Okay. Okay. One more question then as far as volume, if someone were to ask you, how do I know if I should do more? How do you approach that? It's going to, it's going to really vary person to person. It's going to vary muscle group to muscle group, but I'm going to look at different indicators. So I'm going to look at what is their pump like? you know, within session, after session, I'm looking at what their soreness values are like, you know, indicators, what is your, your muscle disruption? So how is that muscle recovering within the sessions? Um, you know, both in the immediate hours post session, as well as the days after, what is their recovery capacity like? And then I'm going to look at biomarkers as well. So if I see that someone has low pumps, they have no soreness, you know, and it's not that we, I, I want to make this very clear. Muscle damage is linked. I, I see it as a byproduct of mechanical tension. I don't, you know, we have these three mechanisms of hypertrophy. I don't really see muscle damages. I see it being a part of the ride. Like it comes along for the ride with mechanical tension. We can't avoid muscle damage or muscle soreness, but right. you know, the CrossFit mentality of chasing soreness and things of that sort, I think that's actually counterproductive because you're causing more damage that now your body has to allocate recovery resources and more of that protein synthetic response to rebuilding broken down tissue essentially, rather than 
actually, you know, going to accrue and accrete new muscle proteins. So, you know, I'm going to see what their soreness is like. I'm going to see what their mindset, what, what their motivation is like. And then also I'm going to look at their training performance. And so if all these things line up that it's, I could tell it's an under stimulative session, like they can do more then I might titrate volume up, but it's going to be in slow, it's going to be in low doses. And we even see in, in certain literature um, that a 20% increase in volume is really effective. So when they've looked at doing a blanketed approach on one, this is another like cross, um, you know, a cross design study where they'll utilize one training volume on one leg and then another training volume on another leg. And when they've done this study, um, it was about two years ago, they did this study where they put people on a standard volume. So they took the average volume of all the people and put them on 22 sets per week in the right quad. And on the left quad, all they did was take their existing volume, what was their current training volume, and increased it by 20%. And in most individuals, they saw greater increases in muscle hypertrophy from the 20% increase. That means that if someone was training 30 sets per week, for legs, they actually went down in the right leg because they went down to 22 and they went up to 36 within the left leg. So they responded to higher volumes. But there was other individuals that grew less from 22 sets, but they grew more when they went from 10 to 12 sets. So it really depends on the individual, but we also have to look at all the context within their lifestyle. Is this person sleeping well? Is there stress managed? There's other bottlenecks as to why someone might not be making progress that are completely outside of the training and volume in and of itself. Then we also have to look at what their relative intensity is like. Are you actually pushing? Like, say you're doing 12 sets per week and you ask me, do I need to do more? Well, what is your proximity of failure on the sets that you're doing? Are you five reps in reserve? So there's so many considerations. What's your exercise selection like? Are you are you utilizing exercise that you, you don't have a mind-to-muscle connection with or that you're not executing correctly? So you think like, I have to throw more volume at the wall to see if something works. So there's so many variables and that's, that's really like the nuances that I would go into with programming. And that's why it's, it's hard to answer those type of things. Oh yeah. Especially if you're just helping someone with programming and you're not looking at their, the rest of their life, it is so much harder because there's so many other variables that come into there with nutrition and recovery. Okay. Absolutely. So it sounds like as a whole though, like, Hey, we're getting a good pump. We're getting a good disruption. I think a lot of times people are like seeing good progress and are so eager to like, I'm seeing great progress. If I did more volume, I could progress even quicker. Where from my perspective, typically is like, Hey, we're progressing the logbook. Well, pump is in a good place. Disruption is in a good place. Let's write this out. Probably not mess with it. And that's my mentality too. It's like, you know, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. I, I feel like that way with a lot of exercise selection, because I see a lot of people, they get onto this novelty kick where they constantly need to be switching their programming and switching their exercises. And, and they're seeing progress within their training performance because every four weeks they're utilizing a different rough scheme or a different exercise. They don't realize those are neuromuscular adaptations. So you're not gaining muscular adaptations or, or, or muscle through that process. And a lot of times we're chasing novelty. And that's where I really have to sit down with a clientele and say, are we looking for progress? Or are we looking for entertainment with our training? And that's something you really need to, to differentiate for yourself. Like, are you looking to actually make visible and tangible progress? And I work with a lot of intermediate and advanced people that are either looking to be their best or look great for summer or get ready for a wedding. Or I have guys on the Olympia level stage, like, Yes, I want their training to be fun, but at a certain point, we have to do the bare bones basics. And I don't mean from like a compound movement perspective, but we have to do the boring basics over and over again until you're extremely efficient at that movement, at your exercise selection, at your connection with that, and your ability to execute all parts of a program so that I can get an accurate and objective gauge of how your body's responding. And then we rinse and repeat until you do need to make, or I do need to make uh, adjustments to your training program to keep per progress going. But a lot of times I think people undervalue the, uh, the effectiveness of utilizing the same training program and eking out every bit of progress you can from it. 
I couldn't agree more, man. Um, all right. So I want to dig into relative intensity and effort here. That said, man, let me know whenever you need to go. Um, <laughs> we might be pushing it for time as far as someone goes. So just let me know when you need to dip here. But let's dig into relative and intensity, intensity, effort. And really the question, should we train to failure or not? Yeah. So I, actually, um, it's funny because relative intensity and this whole concept of whether we should train to failure or we shouldn't is something that's been like the hottest topic of debate this year. And I'm sure you've seen it. Like we see debates on failure training, uh, people going back and forth and arguing. We have like the hit crowd. And then we also have the high volume crowd. We have some people that say you need to take every set to failure. And then other people that say, don't take any set to failure. And I'm kind of in that middle crowd that's saying like, we should utilize failure as a technique, but we don't need to utilize it all the time. And so when you look at most of the current literature, it doesn't show a significant benefit from going to failure as compared to going, say, a few reps shy of failure. But the most recent meta-analysis that I looked on this topic suggested that for specifically trained individuals, so when they did a meta-regression, so they took the meta-analysis and they only looked at trained individuals rather than studies that included both untrained and trained individuals, it did lean in favor of those that are advanced trainees trained to failure. So I personally believe it is important to train to failure on occasion and in moderation. Um, so that you not only know your limits, but you push them as well. Because, you know, I get that there's some, you know, in some camps, uh, they say that training to failure isn't necessary to grow. But my whole like line of thought or my train of thought, especially because I train, I'm not a researcher, I train people in the real world, right. is if you never train to failure, how do you know what zero reps in reserve is, let alone what a two to three RIR is. And so for me, my perspective on the topic is training to failure allows us to get a better gauge of how many reps in reserve we actually have. But this doesn't mean that I always have clients trained to failure because training to complete failure is generally something that I'll reserve for the latter parts of a mesocycle. Okay, absolutely. So then within that, like if we're looking at the latter part of a mesocycle, how often do we see you actually have a client trained to failure? What's dictating that? Yeah, so it's going to depend on multiple factors. And a lot of times it's going to come down to, you know, their physiology, but also their psychology. Um, Because I, I really do, and I don't hear a lot of people talk about this, but you know, you have to consider a, a client's psychological profile because there's going to be some that really enjoy failure training. Like I have people that want to take it to the house. Like currently I'm doing the programming for my, my co-host, Jeff Black, and he's someone that likes burying himself. So I have to know that. And then we have to think about the interaction between training volume and training um, relative effort, or people refer to it as intensity. The reason I'm not referring to it as intensity is intensity is actually your one rep max or percentage on the bar. And so it would actually be intensiveness would be relative effort. But I know that he likes taking things to failure. But then there's other clients that I work with that find even if they went, they could do one rep and reserve all day. But the minute that they go to failure, they find it mentally draining. So then it impacts their subsequent performance and their motivation. So what I will do is I make sure that clients don't go to failure on every set throughout the entire mesocycle. As I, I found, and we see this in the literature, that going to absolute failure on every exercise in every session will lead to a greater accumulation of fatigue, which will thus impair, say, their recovery and their future training performance. And generally what I find, you know, most clients to respond best to is when they're averaging about one to two reps away from failure throughout the course of a mesocycle, as that allows for a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. So I might start three reps in reserve at the beginning of a mesocycle, but then progress to zero reps in reserve. So by the end of the mesocycle, they are going to failure. But if you go to complete failure, there's going to be an exponential amount of neuromuscular fatigue that comes with it, especially because we have to consider the fact that when you do go to failure, you accumulate, you increase metabolic stress. 
And with that comes metabolic byproducts that include ammonia, which actually is, you know, if you look into the, the biology or the biochemistry behind ammonia, it's neurotoxic in the brain. So it's going to cause neuromuscular fatigue. And so we also see that uh, going to failure increases recovery time. So for many, they're better off staying a couple reps shy of failure. Like that could be one to two on average and being able to get more effective volume in as optimizing your training is about appropriately distributing the stress across the course of a week to maximize hypertrophy and manage fatigue so you can get the most out of that mesocycle. So for those who are experienced trainees, I do believe that using failure may be beneficial to break through, say, like a plateau. But we need to consider the fact that with most of the studies, because I, I hear people going back and forth on these debates, and I wonder if they look into the actual studies, to be honest with you. Um, if you actually look at the studies that compare, like you look at the meta-analysis by Gergic or Schoenfeld's on one of them. Like if you look at the studies comparing failure and non-failure, non um, they're looking at training interventions where subjects only train two to three times per week. So we have to consider that it might say, hey, going to failure is better for advanced individuals. But what happens when I have advanced trainees that train five to six times a week? We have to consider there's going to be a lot more accumulated fatigue. And what I also like to consider with clientele and if they're going to go to failure is what exercises and loading zones, like how heavy are they training with that I've programmed when deciding whether I'm going to have them, you know, them or myself go to failure, because say you're using heavier loads on a compound movement. You know, we see this in the research, but I also tell you this myself, I don't think that it's as important to go to failure on a heavy compound multi-joint movement as it is on an isolation. It's also not going to incur as much fatigue going to failure on an isolation movement. Whereas on a compound movement, if you're using heavier loads, you're already going to recruit more muscle fibers and motor units from the start. So it's not like we have to go to, to fatigue or we have to go to failure to get full muscle fiber recruitment. Absolutely. Okay. So it sounds like you may take a somewhat similar approach where a lot of times we'll start like a mesocycle at two to three R an hour with the compound lifts, progress it. But then with those isolation movements, we're training to failure more frequently and potentially sooner in the mesocycle as well. And that's just a very generalized, that's not how we program every mesocycle, but okay, cool. So let's get into training frequency, man, because I think you have kind of a unique approach to this. Just talk us through training frequency and kind of your approach to it, how you dictate like what the training frequency within a client's training split should be. Absolutely. So just so we get a broad-based perspective on training frequency, this could refer to how many days per week you train in general or how many times you hit each muscle group per week, which is what I'm usually referring to when I'm talking about training frequency. And that's what I'm modulating. So I see training frequency as an organizational tool to better manage one's weekly training volume. So when we look at most of the literature on frequency, and this is something that's gone back and forth, um, you know, James Krieger's done a, a meta analysis on this, uh, I believe Greg Knuckles has, we see that between two to three times per week is where you'll see an advantage to training frequency. So doing, you know, hitting body parts two to three times a week as compared to one is going to show more hypertrophic benefits. And then over that advantage, we see, you know, over that amount, we see small advantages, but there's not enough literature really comparing, say, six times per week compared to one time per week or six times compared to two times. And if you're going to utilize those amounts, like the five to six day per week per body part training frequencies, it's pretty much just done to better organize your higher volumes. And I say that because there's a large interaction effect between your volume and your frequency. So if you think about it, if you increase frequency on a muscle group, you'll almost always increase volume as well. And think about like, Jeremiah, think about your current training program. If you were to even just take the exact same amount of sets and exercises you're using for a muscle group and you spread them out over more days, 
you'll be able to do more volume as you'll be fresher within those sessions. So say that you usually hit 15 sets for a body part in one session. If you take that same weekly training volume and spread it out to say two or three sessions, you're going to be able to accumulate more training volume because you'll be able to do more reps per set when you spread them out. And you'll also get better quality volume. So ultimately you should grow more as a result because we do know that volume is very linked to muscle growth. And it's not like you're doing more sets per week. You're doing better effective. So you're doing, you're increasing training or, or volume load. Essentially, you're doing more reps, uh, more, more, uh, weight essentially. Okay. Absolutely. Now I can't say I'm deep into the research on this. Maybe I've read like one abstract. So very much something I have seen in the industry more recently is a lot of people kind of pushing back against the idea that we need as much training frequency and even like kind of area more towards, Hey, we probably, as long as volumes equated, we're good training like one day per week versus three days a week. Like as long as volumes equated, which to me doesn't make sense. Like from the perspective of junk volume, like yes, to an extent, but I think we could very easily get, okay, what if I want to push past like 12 to 14 sets per muscle group? I don't quite understand the logic there. So I would ask like any other, any thoughts on that or like as a whole, any other big benefits that we're going to see from higher training frequencies? Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at it like this. When we do a controlled study, when they do a controlled study, they are equating everything. So when we look at diet studies, they're equating protein and, and then they'll, they'll titrate up carbs and fats. And that's where we see in the diet fits trial that it doesn't matter whether you diet on high carb or low or, or high fat, you can get the equivalent fat loss benefits. Now, here's the thing. They right. do the same thing within training studies where they'll equ uh, equate everything across the, the course of the week. So if someone's utilizing 10 sets per week, they'll do 10 sets done one time per week or they'll utilize a training frequency of two times per week and do five sets twice per week. Here's the thing with that. We know that volume is out of all three, say frequency, intensity, and volume, it's going to be the key driver for mechanical tension. So with that, where in, you know, it might look in research where they equate everything, where they're making sure they sets times reps times load are exactly equivalent. But if we really take that out into the real world, who is going to say that they're unable to do more volume when they spread it out? So for instance, right. if you're doing 10 sets per week, say you get through the first five sets on a back exercise or on back training, the last five sets, you're going to have less, you know, gas in the tank, you know what I mean? right. especially if you're utilizing, I'm utilizing a, a short amount of volume. Say you're doing 20 sets per week. So we're utilizing like the standard, you know, um, evidence-based recommendation, 20 sets per week. When you get from set 12 to set 20, you're probably in that junk volume range because we see that right. that's where muscle protein synthesis starts dipping down. You're no longer getting the same return on your investment, but also those subsequent sets, say after 10 to 12, they're just being lower quality sets. You're not engaged as much. You're both physically and mentally out of it. And then you're also not able to get as many effective reps within that because you're, you're getting closer to failure. However, you're unable to do as many, complete as many reps per set. So if you were to take that 20 sets per week and you said, all right, now I'm going to allocate it towards five, four days. I'm going to do five sets, four days to tell me that you're not going to do when you only have five sets and you can give your all within five sets and then take 48 hours of recovery, 36 to 48 hours. You can't tell me you're not going to do more. So that's where a lot of this literature, yes, when they equate everything down to the gram, and that's the same thing with diet studies. We see that because they're in a metabolic word that everything's controlled. Every single calorie is accounted for. But when we go out into the real world, into a free living study, that's not what we see because I've taken people who were utilizing 16 sets per week and I've divided them into two sessions of eight and I've seen them grow and recover better. So we have to take into consideration, yes, there are limitations within research. They do everything very, uh, for what they're, they're analyzing, they're correct. If you did the exact same volume in terms of sets, in terms of volume load, in terms of 
how many reps and load per set you were utilizing, it's going to be equivalent because you're getting the same amount of total volume. But when we extrapolate things out and we go into the real world and we separate it out over higher training frequencies, especially with, you know, we'll go into the benefits of higher training frequencies. You're going to see better benefits over the long term, in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay. And very interesting trend. I don't know if you've seen that as well, but I've just seen that a lot more recently. And it's kind of Absolutely. surprising. Okay, cool. And so there's, there's also personal anecdotes. So people will say, well, the pros do this. It's the pro split. Well, also the pros, if we actually look at it, first of all, they have a better response. Second of all, a lot of them have a longer satellite cell response. So with that, they're able to activate satellite cells, which is one of the main reasons as to why we can continue um, you know, growing muscle. If you look at it, a lot of those with great genetics have um, a gene coding that actually allows them to have a satellite cell response and those growth factor responses for five to seven days after training. So they have an elongated, you know, period. Also, if we look at the training literature and we compare lower frequency with higher frequency, generally that's done in, in new trainees. And we see that muscle protein synthesis can last between three and seven days within new trainees. Whereas if we look in the literature on advanced trainees that are experienced, we only see uh, muscle protein synthesis elevated for 24 to 48 hours. So it's truncated. So there's a lot of things that we have to, we have to look at, is this ecologically valid? Meaning, is there external validity? Does it apply what they're looking at? Does it apply to me? And often when we're looking at untrained populations, utilizing a very lab controlled training intervention or training program, if that's not what we're doing and not our level of advancement, we really can't take those. We can take some of the principles and apply them, but we can't take that same protocol and say, Yes, because an untrained individual that was going to respond to anything was able to train one time per week or two times per week and grow the same. I can apply it to Jeremiah that's been training 10 years. I love it, man. Cool. So let's get into higher training frequencies. Any other benefits there as far as like these higher training frequencies outside of what we've already discussed? A ton, man. So like I mentioned, the first thing is it allows you to spread out your total weekly training volume over multiple sessions. So you're gonna get better quality volume each session and you're gonna be able to accumulate more volume throughout the course of a week. And another thing, a high you know, frequency training program can help you avoid central fatigue, which is usually caused by higher volumes of training within a session because doing a higher amount of sets per session leads to higher levels of peripheral fatigue. So local fatigue, which can induce central fatigue. And this is something we wanna manage and avoid as the goal of training is to induce you know, local fatigue to the muscle we're training, not to accumulate central or systemic fatigue. So by utilizing, you know, a higher training frequency and spreading out the amount of volume that you do for a particular body part, you're going to be able to get less fatigue, not only during your sessions, but also after. So you're going to have less recovery debt for a body part, because think about it just, you know, logically, if you were to be training, um, you know, chest 14 sets per week, you're going to incur a lot more fatigue if you do 14 sets in one session, especially towards the end of it, you're going to um, have a lot more systemic fatigue than if you did, say, five, five, and four. You know, you did it three times a week, or you did it even two times a week, and you utilize seven sets per session. And then we also have, there's research that shows that higher frequencies may enhance muscular recovery as it not only increases blood flow and nutrient partitioning, but also the act of, you know, putting muscle through contractions and moving muscle acts as a form of active recovery which has been shown if we actually look into the literature on active versus passive recovery in terms of recovery rates, we see a better advantage to active recovery. So yes, a lot of times the, the argument or sometimes clients will come to me and say, I don't know if I can train that often. You know, I don't know if I can recover from that. Well, remember I'm titrating your dose. It's not like when I talk about higher training frequency, I want to make it really apparent that if you're training 20 sets per week, I'm not telling you, 
hey, you train 20 sets of legs on Monday. We're going to come back on Friday and do another 20 sets. It's we're dividing your total amount of volume right now into more sessions per week so that we can get more effective work out of those sessions. And if you think about it, if I just cut your training volume for a particular day in half, I've essentially cut down the recovery debt that you've incurred by half or more. And so by spreading them out, you're going to have, especially with that passive or that active recovery uh, advantage, you're going to be able to recover even better. And we also see that it leads to less soreness, you know, due to the fact that, you know, soreness is usually a sign of muscle damage, which is reduced when you use, you know, less volume per session. So just by the fact that we're utilizing, you know, less sets per session, we're going to have less muscle damage. And we have to, you know, consider that because although it's been put out there that muscle damage is a mechanism of hypertrophy, too much muscle damage will actually extend our recovery process as when a muscle has sustained like a lot of muscle damage, the body will actually preferentially, you know, extend our recovery process. And then also it'll prioritize, you know, repairing those damaged proteins before it builds new ones. So this is like why if you, you go from smashing a body part with 20 sets per session to spreading it out, you'll notice, like I've had clients tell me like, Hey, I don't feel sore anymore. Like I used to be trashed after leg day, but now I have spread their leg day into two or three sessions. And so they're going to have better recovery capacity, better soreness, but also it's going to allow for, you know, something I noticed personally when I started utilizing a higher frequency, you know, modality was I got higher rep execution, like rep quality. So my reps, because I was doing less work, I also wasn't rushing through a session. So a lot of times, if you know you have 15 or 20 sets in a session, like you're kind of rushing through it either. You're rushing through the sets, you're rushing through your rest periods. And that's another thing. So we have to consider rest periods. We see in research that, you know, three minutes, you know, is, is more hypertrophic than one minute. And that's because you're able to get more out of each set. So you're able to exert yourself more because you're more recovered. You've cut down on some of that, that built up fatigue. And so, you know, we're able to get better rep quality and then also better execution on each exercise without having, you know, accumulated too much fatigue, which would have limited us if we were to go past, say, 10 sets per, per muscle group per week. And so another thing, it's going to allow you to handle more load per session. And then like I kind of mentioned before was you're getting um, more of a stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. So you're sending, you know, when you're doing it more frequently, when you're advanced, you know, this is something I find really important because for advanced individuals, your muscle protein synthesis rates just don't stay elevated as long as they did when you were a beginner. So, you know, mechanistically, it wouldn't make sense that you stimulate them more frequently. So you're sending that signal to your muscle to grow more frequently than just hitting it, getting a synthetic response for two days, and then staying in this state that you're not growing for five more days because you're only hitting a muscle group once time per week. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So it sounds like as a whole, then you would define higher frequency training as like generally two to three days per week. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest with you, Jeremy, I've went up to, I've personally experimented with six days a week, full body training, but I I wouldn't recommend that. I don't do that with all clients, but I wanted to see, you know, I have this, uh, it's funny. I have this mentality with myself. First of all, I practice what I preach in everything that I do. So when I talk about energy flux or I talk about high frequency training, or I talk about any of these modalities, I've experimented them with myself. I believe that as a practitioner, as a coach, we need to not only promote things, but we need to practice what we preach and we have to live the lifestyle that we, you know, encourage others and guide others to do. So I've tried every training frequency you could think of six days per week was too much for me, but I saw my best benefits from between three to four days per week. However, with most of my clientele, I see the, the best benefit from two to three days per week for each body part. And now mind you, this isn't going to be the normal, you know, training split. It's going to be very individualized and context dependent, depending on the person's schedule. 
you know, if they only have three days per week, we're going to utilize a full body split, but generally it's going to be maybe an upper lower split. It's going to be uh, an upper push and a lower push type of, uh, you know, um, allocation. Maybe it'll be, um, you know, horizontal and, and vertical push. And, and it's going to depend on the person themselves, maybe a, a push uh, legs pull split. So it's going to deviate per clientele, but I generally see, I'll take them if they're utilizing a bro split, I'll take them from one time per week. And then I'll start transitioning them, maybe only certain body parts to twice per week, really body parts that they need focus on. Um, but then slowly but surely, I will experiment with mesocycles done at three times per week. And I also want to make the caveat that just like I said, that volume doesn't need to stay the same the entire course of the year, neither does frequency. So we have to realize that periodization is meant to be applied to everything. And I feel like a lot of people, they periodize like their training programs in terms of their paradigms, like they'll utilize a five to one paradigm. So they call that periodization. Like they, they train for five weeks, they deload for one week. And that's their peri- that's the extent of their periodization. Or they might periodize their rep ranges, but they also don't consider, hey, let me periodize my intensity techniques. Let me periodize my training frequencies. Let me tra- periodize my volumes. So, you know, I'm going through different, different systemic phases. You know what I mean? I'm looking at utilizing a lower volume phase and then slowly titrating up into a moderate volume phase, maybe doing a higher volume phase and potentially doing some, functional overreaching and then pulling it back and going into a maintenance block. And I I really find that to be highly beneficial, not only from a physiological perspective, but also from a psychological perspective where a client is able to, to have some excitement, you know what I mean? And look forward to different phases of training. And also I'm learning their body in the process, but they're learning their response too. what do they prefer? Especially when I'm working with lifestyle clients, I'm like, all right, we utilize a five or six week mesocycle of high volume training. How did you like it? Well, you know, I saw good results, but it doesn't fit my lifestyle. I just don't have 75 minutes per day for the gym. All right. We can always transition. We saw how you responded to a moderate volume training cycle. You did really well. It was very negligible gains between, you know, differences in gains between, you know, the low, the moderate volume and the high volume. We can easily transition you back to around the same volumes we were utilizing on the previous phase, maybe swap out some exercises and we're going to be able to rinse and repeat. Okay. I love it. So do you have time to dig in a specialization cycle? So do you need to run here? Yeah, I, I got to run my next calls in like five minutes, my man. Okay, cool. We will say that topic too. for, we'll save that topic for another time. Um, any notes you want to leave the listener with before I let you go here? Final thoughts. No, I'm just to take this information and um, provide us with some, some questions and comments. We will cover, you know, in-depth specialization cycles, which do encompass a lot of the things we spoke about, because these are the prime, you know, as you, you mentioned, and you intro the show, these are the primary considerations of a hypertrophy program. Really what you guys should be considering when looking to design a hypertrophy program, looking at the fundamental basics. And then from there, we can get into the more nuances of training programization and, or programming and some of the different approaches and methods. But once you have the principles, then everything else makes sense. Because a lot of time, you know, Jeremiah and I spoke about this off air, you know, a lot of times people get into these sexy nuances of programming and they put out these things on Instagram or on podcasts and they talk about these really nuanced conversations, but they haven't given the audience um, a, you know, a basic fundamental level of what they should be really prioritizing rather than getting focused on the nuances of this sexy exercise or this, you know, metabolite phase or this, that, and the other. And it's like, listen, if you don't have the basics and, and you don't understand those first, you might get lost into the nuances, the minutia of what that individual or that, you know, educator is talking about. I couldn't agree more, man. And I think that's so important. It's so easy to just skip over the big rock, so to speak. So per usual, dude, I will link up where to find you on Instagram, email your podcast. Um, and we will have to do part two here soon, but as always, man, I appreciate you being here. Absolutely, brother. Thanks for having me.